0: Hello, 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 everybody. Uh, This is uh, Mike Mills with Verity Mortgage, and this is the Texas Real Estate and Finance Podcast. So uh, welcome, everybody, today. Uh, Today, we are going to be discussing um, something that I've been digging for for a long time because I love saving money and I am sick of paying as many taxes as I do. So, excuse me. So I welcome in uh, somebody I've met for the very first time today, so this is going to be a new experience for me as well because usually I have people in the studio, but uh, I have a CPA uh, with me that specializes in real estate and real estate investment properties and the taxes that go along with that and how to save the most amount of money. So please welcome Mr. Ryan Bakey to the show. I even got, uh, uh, that's, that's my uh, production value right there. It was real brief though.
1: <laughs> Thanks.
0: I appreciate it. How you it. doing, man?
1: it's more than I've gotten some podcasts yeah there
0: you go there you go hey everybody's got a podcast it's like uh it's the uh you know what's the what's the what's everybody's got an opinion and they're like you know what oh yeah if everybody's a
1: millionaire no one's a millionaire
0: same sayings exactly so um well I want to get into your background a little bit so everybody kind of knows where you're coming from on uh you know your education and uh your firm and all that stuff but just right out of the gate um, can you tell me um, you know, if you were a realtor right now or you were anybody structuring your 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 taxes or just trying to make more money or save more money in real estate, what's the number one thing, you know, that you can do to either make the most or save the most amount of money, uh, just right out of the chute.
1: Yeah, especially being a realtor and being a 1099 as opposed to a W two, mm-hmm. you already have the advantage to save money in taxes because you're a business owner rather than an employee. But to combine being a 1099 business owner with investing in real estate, you open up what I call like the golden goose egg of the tax code. And the quickest way to make your next $10,000 in real estate is to just save $10,000 in taxes. Because I promise, you know, hopefully after listening to this podcast and doing some more digging, if you're a full time realtor and you own investment properties, we can at least save you five figures here today.
0: Wow. So you can so really and truly, if you're looking at it as opposed to say or as, as opposed to making money, you can make money by saving money just by having that extra knowledge and having the right deductions when you do your taxes.
1: Yeah. And I've actually I've actually had that epiphany of I've had to change my marketing and my language because I've I've always come to the the mindset of like saving is like hunkering down. Right. Rather than making, it's it's like a growth mindset rather than a fixed, like bring it in and hunker down and save. I've, I've had to actually change my marketing and my mindset around that recently.
0: Well, I talk about that sometimes too. Is like it's either a defensive strategy or an offensive strategy. It's like when you're looking at running a business, are you trying to save every nickel you can, or are you trying to go out and make more money? And there's obviously a balance there. Like you, mm. you, you got to do a little bit of both. Um, but in this particular case today, we're going to talk primarily on how to save money when it comes to your expenses and all the deductions and all that kind of stuff. So. So before we get into it real deep, um, tell me a little bit about, you know obviously you're a young guy, uh, so I'm, I'm 44 years old, so everybody's watching this going like, where, where's this guy gonna tell us, right? So you're a younger guy, but uh, tell us about where you went to school, tell us about your company, um, how many, how many accounts you have working with you these days, and uh, just generally um, give us an idea of how you got to this point.
1: Yeah, I went to school for accounting and finance. Those are my uh, double whammy. I had uh, a really good professor, one of my finance professors, Uh, She used to do into commercial real estate. So we were always analyzing pro formas, cap rates, reversions in class. So I had a lot of that background in real estate, but I I didn't fall in love with real estate until I started getting more into the tax code and how it benefits real estate investors. Because in my opinion, when you look at the tax code, it's written by um, Congress. And when you see Congress is made up of business owners, investors, and people who own real estate. And so it's no wonder that the laws that they write, Are going to favor those types of behavior because it it really does grow the economy if you're in one of those three different fields there investments, business owner, and real estate. And I had that notion, but it really didn't hit me until I was working at one of my first CPA firms while I was in school. And I was preparing two tax returns. I had one tax return, uh, it was a a married couple making $200,000 a year. They were both W-2 employees. And then I had this uh, tax return for the single guy who, he owned a, about 20 apartment buildings in Chicago. So he was making about $400,000 a year in cash flow from his apartment buildings. And the married couple was making $200,000 from their from their day jobs. He's single, which means he's in a way higher tax bracket than a married couple. And he made double the amount of money. But he actually paid less in taxes than the married couple that made half as much. Wow! And I remember asking my boss that day, I was like, hey... Um, How's that possible there? And right. and this one sentence that changed it for me, he goes, it's because he invests in real estate. Right. And that was all that I needed to know to then, you know, dedicate my entire life really to understanding how it works, you know, the tax benefits, you know, getting the loans, appreciation, all the terms that real estate investors deal with. You know, I've made it my my life work to understand how it works and be able to take things that are extremely complex to most people and, and boil them down to something that everybody can understand. So Shortly after I, you know, I graduated college, I got my CPA license. I worked at uh, Deloitte Consulting for 18 months, almost two years. At, at Deloitte, I did uh, consulting for investment banks, hedge funds, real estate syndication. So I was helping people who are already rich and wealthy become even more rich and wealthy. Right. And, I, and I decided I wanted to help the not the everyday person, not every person, but I wanted to help the person in their family that wants to change their family tree right. because I believe there's one person in each family lineage that changes it for everybody. And I want to help that person. So my company now, uh, I have uh, two, two CPAs on staff, another person studying for the CPA, uh, full-time You know, video, social media team. I have VAs. So I, we have a CPA firm uh, focused on real estate investors.
0: So um, I, I think a lot of people may lose sight of that sometimes when you talk about when you're involved in real estate, whether you're a real estate professional or you're doing investments or whatever the case may be. I, didn't, I never even looked at it that way. When when you have the people that literally are writing the tax code and writing the laws that the vast majority of them own real estate and, and have for a long time, um, you know, obviously the rules and the laws are going to be much more favorable to those who write it. Right. Yep. It's just like
1: writing your own script of a sports
0: game. Right, right. So, but the trick is, is, um, learning the rules of that game. So then you could take advantage of, uh, of what everybody else knows, but you may not be aware of as you're, you know, cause you're a smaller guy getting into things. So, so as a, if you were talking to a real estate professional, like a realtor, for example, and they were getting into the business right out of the chute, like this was their first year coming in, or even maybe somebody that's been in the business for a minute when you look at business structure, right, how do I put my business together when I come out of the gate um, to make sure that I get the most advantage um, when it comes to filing my taxes? Because I do, you know, I have heard and, you know, obviously, you know, way more than I do, but there are some advantages, obviously, to being a real estate professional, especially when you own investment properties as well. There's like a, you get kind of almost like a double whammy, I think. Um, But if you were just going to structure something together between whether it's a Schedule C or you're talking about LLCs or corporations, how would you go about putting something together initially if you were brand new in the business
1: yeah so let's just assume you're a brand new realtor and you're getting paid via 1099 so you're not a w2 employee for a brokerage if you're a 1099 you the first thing you want to do is you want to set up a separate bank account for your for your business and so you're going to route all your commissions and all the expenses that you have For your business out of that bank account. So you want to separate your personal from your business. So again, all your commissions are going to go through there, but then also all your, you know, your licensing fees and your marketing material and everything that you have, your costs, your meals and stuff are going to come out of that business bank account. Um, When you're a 1099 uh, independent contractor, you have to pay what's called self-employment tax on top of the additional income that you would make as if you were a W-2. So I'll, I'll save some time and, and cut to it a lot of people look at LLCs and say, okay, does an LLC actually save me money? And the answer straight up is no. An LLC is just a—it's an entity. It's not necessarily going to save you money on taxes just by having the LLC. Okay. Where the LLC can potentially save you money is if you are making a decent amount of money as a realtor. I typically, because of inflation, i have I've had to raise this ever since I started talking about it. But I would say now, you know, if you're ma- if you're a realtor netting you know seventy thousand, I, w- I would say seventy five to eighty thousand dollars and up as a realtor, if that's your net income, you should be looking to uh, have an LLC, but have it be taxed as an S corporation. Okay. The uh, the S corporation is going to allow you as a realtor to save money on self employment tax. Uh, but the S corporation is not limited to just realtors. Um, if you're a property manager, you can have an S corp. If you do co hosting, if you do You know, uh, maintenance work, any sort of ordinary business activity. My CPA firm is an S corporation. Okay. You are leaving money on the table if you are, let's just say, a six-figure earner and you do not have an S corporation because you're you're probably paying. You know, an S. My S corporation last year saved me nine thousand bucks in self-employment tax. Oh wow! And back to the back to the beginning of the podcast, I could I could tell you how to save you know five figures right off the bat. Is if you're a realtor and you're making good money and you don't already have an S corp, that's your first. Uh, thing you need to look at is I need to look into this S corp piece here, just for the bus- just for the realtor business. So right. we're still on the realtor side. Right. So simply by having an LLC alone will not save you money in taxes, but yeah. electing that to be an S corporation and there's more rules involved. You have to file an additional tax return. But if you, like I said, if you're if you're making eighty thousand dollars or more as a realtor net income, you should have an S corporation.
0: So real quick on when you were talking about the bank statement earlier about depositing commissions into the bank statement and then you know obviously putting out all your expenses so what do you do when you're brand new and your commissions don't exceed your expenses so can you give yourself like a loan like how would you go about covering that so that way um you have the ability to make sure that you know you're you are tracking everything from the same account but if i you know didn't make enough money if i'm a brand new agent i didn't make enough money last month but i still have to pay my dues and i have to pay my insurance and i have to pay my you know brokerage fees or whatever um how do you reconcile that between having to give personal money into the business and is there some sort of deduction you can get for that as well
1: yeah so you would you would have your business bank account and you would start that by an owner's contribution so you could start, your owner's contribution could be as little bit of a hundred dollars. Um, I think when I started my business bank, it was like a thousand bucks. But you're gonna have that initial contribution from your personal bank account to your business bank account when you go to set it up. Gotcha. And so let's say you were to run out of money in that uh, account, you would just keep doing owner's contributions from your personal okay. to your business. And then when you when you do have a surplus of income, um, you you can transfer from the business to your personal uh, as in what's called an owner owner draw so you have owners contributions going in and then owners draws pulling the money out yeah
0: gotcha so do you get special deductions as an individual if i move money into my business or is that just you know
1: no it it, it's more so from a a legal standpoint of keeping expenses separate so you wouldn't want to you know for instance you wouldn't want to pay a business um expense out of your personal account and you definitely don't want to be paying personal expenses out of your business account Now, there's there's certain things like with my lifestyle, for example. So, you know, I'm always traveling or like I run three businesses. So, you know, some way, shape or form, I could probably write off most of my expenses because I'm always traveling for business. Right. Right. But you want to keep that separation of personal and your business account
0: so do you recommend people get like so obviously they have their bank account um would you have say like a credit card as well perhaps because you know obviously for different things you need um uh you know whether it's renting cars or whatever the case may be would you recommend they have an account for that as well because I think tracking expenses seems to be a big issue a lot of times with with anybody that's self-employed really um and you know making sure that everything's kind of in one spot so it whether you have a bookkeeper or whether you're using a CPA just managing all. that together is like if you can keep it all in one space is there an advantage to that is that something you recommend how do you look at that
1: yeah i mean i have so uh, so even within a business account so i might have a business that owns two or three rental properties Uh um i I can have separate credit cards for each rental property so i might have one business that owns three rentals here but i'm gonna have separate credit cards for each rental so that way i know, know hey i can pay this bill with this credit card this bill with that credit card and so that way I can keep track of my revenues and expenses a lot easier that way.
0: Right. It makes it easier to manage in the long term essentially if you have everything in one spot.
1: Yeah. So- I mean, that's probably the biggest like common mistake is just really sloppy record keeping and bookkeeping. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not hard guys. It's addition and subtraction we learn in third grade, you know. Right. <laughs> what did you make? How much did you spend? And that's that's basically. There's there's a little, a little bit more into the weeds of like certain deductions you sure. can take or not take, but that's I mean, that's 90% of it is. Addition and subtraction, you can figure it out, I promise.
0: So I've always heard too, whenever you own multiple investment properties, because a lot of people that are agents that are realtors, they do get into investment properties as well, because you're out looking at houses all the time. You know, you're checking out, you know, values, you know, houses that are underpriced and overpriced. definitely. You get very familiar with it so you'll see a lot of agents that'll transition into becoming either long-term uh investment rentals or short-term rentals or even multifamily. so um for each property and you said this a minute ago about having a, like a credit card for each one do you want to set up a separate llc for each property that like flows into the corporation or how would you structure something like that to give you a the best tax advantage but also you know the whole idea betwi- bet- behind an LLC is liability, obviously. So, how would you, you know, structure that? Do you need one for each entity?
1: So that's a good question. So, to me, it depends on what state you're in. So, yeah. a state like Illinois, we have a uh, it's like a seventy five dollar a year fee to have an LLC. You sign a you sign a one page document that says, "Hey, did were you in business last year?" Okay, cool. Pay us seventy five bucks and sign right here, and then yeah. and that's it. It's really simple. Now, a state like Texas. You Guys have something similar, except you guys have to file an additional tax return with your LLC per yes. LLC. Yes. And so it just leads to your complexity to have multiple LLCs. Um so I look at it, I look at it at two two different outlooks that I'll tell clients whether or not they need to have an LLC for each property. So the first thing I'll say is the your net worth in real estate compared to your net worth in non-real estate assets. Okay. So if you tell me like Ryan, hey, I got a million dollar net worth and I got $800,000 of that million as equity in my rentals, I'm telling you, you you're you going to need an LLC for each rental right off okay. the bat. There's too so if you have a, a bunch liability. of equity,
0: you're going to need some protection there.
1: Yes. Okay. So it, now if you flip that on its head and you say, hey, I got a million dollar net worth, but I only have $200,000 in rental properties mm-hmm. and $800,000 in my primary home, 401ks, IRAs, whatever, then I'm like, okay, you probably can get away with just having really good umbrella insurance on your rental property. That's gotcha. so why you have insurance, right? Right. Um, the other outlook of it, and this is one that I that I pers- this is probably one that some people who um, don't have a million dollar net worth would look at is is how much equity do you have per property? So some people will say, hey, once I have you know per LLC, I'm going to have a certain amount of equity in there. So for example, you know my threshold is 150k of equity. Once I get 150k of equity in an LLC. Whether that's one or two properties, that that's the most I could deal with. I want to set up other entities because your net equity of your property is what you actually stand to lose in the event of a lawsuit. That's what they're going to come and take. Gotcha. Um, so then there's all types of strategies that we can get into that I you know I help clients with where there's um, if you just Google the term called equity stripping, um, sure. there's there's tons of there's tons of advantages to say buying the property in your personal name with um conventional loan you know uh low money down better better terms better rate once the property appreciates the value strip the equity out of the property whether it cash out refinance heloc or liens and then put the property in the llc because the net equity of the property you just borrowed against it so it reduced the net equity Got and it. then you go and put them in llc so there's that's, that's more of a, a legal thing but um
0: So you're basically stripping the equity out with those refinances or whatever, and then using that money, obviously for maybe more investments or whatever you're going to do with it. But then once you've kind of let's call it maxed out your equity to some extent, then you're going to move that property into an LLC at that point because then um, the benefit is greater. Is that right?
1: You just have too much. The more equity you have in the property, the more you stand to lose. Gotcha. Yeah. Cause you're only at fault because most of the loans are going to be considered recourse. And so you're you're at fault for you know you're you stand to lose what the net equity in the property is. So if I you know if I have a hundred thousand dollar loan on a property that's worth three hundred k, like I stand to lose two hundred grand. Right. So you know if I'm if I'm going off my rule, I want that property to be in an LLC because it's over one hundred fifty k.
0: Right.
1: Or I borrow you know I take eighty percent LTV on the two hundred k, and I drop I drop my equity down to only forty thousand or. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, do the math. I'm sorry. 60,000, whatever it is. Now it's, now it doesn't meet that mustard of the LLC test. So it, it depends.
0: So speaking of debt, because, uh, you know, I'm a lender, so this is uh, working home loans all the time. We do cash out refinances and all that fun stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I want to hear your opinion on, uh, you know, cause the, Dave Ramsey is always somebody that people quote all the time about, um, you know, debt is bad, debt is bad, debt is bad. Now, in this particular instance, I think Dave's probably in agreement with us on this as well. But um, when you when you just hear somebody say, well, debt's bad, I don't want debt, right? I agree with that. You know, if you're taking out debt to go buy a pair of tennis shoes and you're paying 20% interest on a credit card, yeah, that's a bad idea. Um, but when it comes to real estate, okay, and property, why is that debt not necessarily such a terrible thing?
1: Yeah, I would say I, so I actually kind of throughout college, I was a Dave Ramsey disciple. So it was always, you know, get out of debt as quick as possible and start investing in retirement accounts, Yep. Uh, but it it wasn't until I got into like corporate in the real world. And I was seeing what rich and wealthy people were doing. They were getting into debt to buy income producing assets and they were getting all their money out of retirement accounts. They weren't investing in retirement accounts. So I had this huge paradigm shift myself. So I would personally say that, like, I think Dave Ramsey is probably good for like 85 to 90% of Americans. But yeah. for the 10% of people that are listening to this podcast right now, uh, I definitely agree, get out of consumer debt. So high interest credit cards, student loans, um, car loans, for example, like get out of high interest um, debt, but income producing debt can be a, a really powerful tool. And the three, the three things you have to understand if you wanna become extremely wealthy is number one, debt, number two, inflation, and number three, taxes. Mm -hmm. So for example, let's just look at a 10 year time horizon because it's easiest to look at that way, right? So I'm going to use debt in year one to buy an asset. You know, let's say I use 80% LTV. So, you know, I put 20% down on a $500,000 house. So I put $100,000 down, um, but the bank will give me 400 to go buy the $500,000 house, right? Now I have an asset. Is that an asset it's appreciating? So my 100 grand, if I take the 100 grand and I put it in the stock market and I get a 5% per year return, I'm only making five grand. If I get five percent on my five hundred thousand dollar house, I'm getting a twenty five thousand dollar return. So I'm five xing my return by using leverage, debt right. leverage, same thing, right? Yep. And then what you have to understand is that, um, and you should, everybody should be doing, you know, especially if you're like beginner, like one to five house range, do fixed rate, fixed rate mortgages. I wouldn't mess around with like ARMs or floating rate, you know, that type of debt. Stick to uh, fixed rate mortgages because look, look here. Then, so as I'm paying that mortgage off the longer I wait to pay that off typically 30 years that the value of that becomes less and less to the bank. So I might, I might, you know, on a $500,000 house, you know, I might have a mortgage that is, you know, I don't know, it's something like 2,700 bucks, $2,800, whatever it's called three grand. Mm-hmm. And, but I'm paying that three grand off every month. And the longer that it take to pay it off, the less the money's worth to the bank because of inflation, right? right? That yeah. money that I'm paying over and over time is not worth the same as, If I was to pay it in year one, but the banks can give me money in year one, right? So you have debt or leverage, you have inflation because the money that I'm actually paying back is worth less now. And then you have taxes, right? Because whether or not I put 10% down, 30% down, or I buy the house in cash, I still get the same tax benefit that we're going to get into. I still get the same tax benefit of, of that property. And so if I can get the tax benefits in year one and debt inflation taxes those are the three things that you really have to understand and we'll kind of get into the taxes part of it in a little bit but debt inflation taxes you have to understand those three if you want to if you want to be really wealthy
0: so if you were going to buy a house yourself and it was going to be an investment property or let's just say even a primary residence one that you were going to buy on your own because i have my own thoughts on this but i'm curious what you think um Mm -hmm. what would you put down as an individual, like if you were buying a house that you were going to live in, would you put down twenty percent to save your mortgage insurance, or would you put down the minimum that's required depending on the type of loan you're doing FHA, conventional, or whatever?
1: Yeah, I, I would. I would say um, one of the things I make I see investors make the mistake of all the time is they're not they're they're so focused on the next thing at hand that they're not playing the long term game and setting themselves up for the future. So the quickest thing I see is you got a taxpayer or a client buys a primary home you know, gets into this uh, rental thing, goes and uh, uses a secondary home loan, let's just say to buy a short term rental, they cap out their DTI, they can't borrow anymore. They're right. forced to use commercial loans, DSCR products, bank statement loans, things that have shittier terms and higher rates to yeah uh, and prepayment penalties. So, you know, me personally, if I could go back, so I bought my first house, three and a half percent down FHA, like house hack, yep. um, and I thought that, and I had a 3% interest rate at the time,
0: real uh, quick if it, uh, i've heard you say ahead. house hack before and other stuff so explain what you mean by that because I, I know what you're talking about but yeah but explain what you mean when you say that
1: so house hacking is where the, the government the government will allow you to do an fha loan and buy up to a four unit property as long as you live in the property and they'll allow you to put three and a half percent down so you know it doesn't work in all markets but in most in most areas you know midwest i still think in texas somewhere i think depending on where you're at but You'd be able to buy a property, put three and a half percent down, live in one side, rent out the other side and use that that other side's income to help pay off your mortgage. And they'll actually, qual- um, for me, they took 75% of the gross rent that I got on the other side towards That's my right. DTI count. Yep. Now I heard, I think it's like 50% that they take now, but is it still 75?
0: No, yeah, it's still, so yeah, and, okay. and you can do this in Texas. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, because FHA is a uh you know it's a it's a national thing it's not a you know state statewide yeah. or a state specific deal. So yes, you can buy uh one to four units uh with an FHA loan and you can put down three and a half percent as your down payment as long as you're gonna live in one of the units. And then yeah. um if you have agreed upon leases with the other units, then you can use what's called a vacancy factor, which takes away 25% or you know 75% of the rent. Now you don't you can't get income meaning we can't Give you extra income if your rent was like two thousand and the cost was only a thousand. Like you, you, you are limited there. There is a weird little rule in there that says you can basically offset the expense, but you can't give extra income. But sure. uh, but yes, it does it does help your DTI because then in that case you have um you know the mortgage payment that you're you're being counted against you is reduced because you have the leases. So and then um and then lots of people and this is something i've about all the time when i when i talk to buyers and then you take that property of course and you know i tell especially young people is like look if you're going to start buying something early which you should and you know things are really expensive right now and that's just that's just what it is i mean obviously it depends on where you're at in the country but here locally you know i bought my first house in 2004 and i spent 130 thousand dollars, and it was 100 uh, 1800 square foot home you know, in a nice neighborhood and that same house that I bought, uh, in 2004, uh, sold two years ago for 330. So, um, it's crazy, but aside from the whole affordable housing issue, um, you can then take that property and then go, um, you know, buy another one as a primary residence and then turn that one into an investment, um, and rent it out. Now, you know, if you really want to get next level on it, you probably want to refinance it beforehand. So that way you can uh, take your FHA loan because you can only have one at a time and you can use that on the next property. But even still, I don't usually recommend personally, um, once you get to a certain point um, you know, with your credit and everything else, that FHA is great because with conventional loans, you can put down 5% and the mortgage insurance on an FHA loan is going to be much more expensive if you have good credit. Because Uh, right now with conventional loans, uh, your credit, your uh, debt to income and your um, down payment impact the mortgage insurance. So if you bought a, say a $400,000 house and you had good credit and a relatively low debt ratio, your mortgage insurance on that loan with 5% down might be like 75 or 80 bucks. But if you bought that same property with an FHA loan, your mortgage insurance is going to be closer to $200 a month. So even though you're putting a little bit more money down, five, percent versus three and a half, um, the overall savings is so much greater that um, you you don't even necessarily need your FHA loan after that first one because it doesn't always make a ton of sense.
1: Also, talk about what happens when you get a 20% equity in either situation.
0: Uh, well then, or, well, so with FHA, you still pay mortgage insurance, regardless of how much money you put down. Um, and with conventional, you have the ability to remove it sooner rather than later. So if you pick up equity, because I mean, you know, the market's appreciated, uh, it's been, you know, in Texas, at least on every market's different. Um, we've seen 20 to 30% over the past, you know, two or three years now, granted that's not expected to continue because the market's plateaued, but. Even with eight percent interest rates, you know our market's gone up three or four percent, you know year over year. So, um, but when you pick up that extra equity, if you get to a point where you have twenty percent equity, then you can reach out to your servicing bank, request an appraisal. They will come out, do an appraisal. Usually, cost you five or six hundred bucks, and then um, you can get the mortgage insurance removed. Now, the only caveat is is that in most cases, and I, I don't know of any exceptions to this, but I always say most, cause I'm always hedging my, you know, or oh, you're wrong cause you're, but in most cases that I'm aware of, you have to have mortgage insurance for at least 12 months. So once you have mm. and agree to the mortgage insurance, you have to carry it for 12 months. And then after the 12 months, then you can get it removed. So I typically tell people whether they're trying to do a recast. Cause you know, we have a lot of people that I want to sell my house. And then I need the equity from that house. Cause I want to put 20% on this one. Um, I don't, you know, from an investment side, I'm like, keep your cash and do something else with it. But if that's what you want to do, then you can take that equity and you can recast your mortgage one time, usually in the life of the loan, where you can take the payment from whatever it is you started at and reduce it down. Like you would have, if you to put 20% or 30% down when you bought it. So if you're going to do something like that, or if you, you know, intend to, uh, you know get the mortgage insurance removed then you just need to wait 12 months and then after that 12 month period of time then you have freedom yeah. to do whatever you want yep but i just I, the reason i was asking you about the down payment side is because you know as a mortgage guy you know i always tell people when i talk to them like look i'm the loan guy i obviously want you to do a bigger loan you know all those kind of things however if I'm in your shoes, and I've always done this with my own personal properties, whether it be my investment properties or commercial or pr- primary residences, is I never put down more than I absolutely have to. Because the m- the thinking behind it is, and tell me if you think I'm wrong on this, because I'm, I'm happy to be wrong. But the thinking on it is that money that I sunk into my house, once I put it in there, it's out of play. Like I can't do anything with it because the only way I can get access to it is to either sell the property itself or do a refinance of some kind to pull the equity back out. And in either one of those instances, it's going to cost me money to do it. So I'm going to have to pay money to get my money out. Whereas when I buy it, you know, if I put down 20% on an investment or I put down 5% on a primary or 10% on a second home, I'm not going to put down any more than that, than I absolutely have to. Because again, once it goes into the house, I can't get it back out without some sort of um event that i'm gonna have to pay money to do so and not to mention you know i don't necessarily think yeah. this matters that much but the whole interest you know deduction is always helpful too so
1: yeah i mean i'm I'm along the similar lines i always tell people like i said no matter if you put 10 or 20 or 30 percent down you still get the same appreciation and the tax benefit yeah. and no matter if you pay the mortgage down more your your appreciation is still going to be the same um i would say in certain deals like the one i just penciled last night for somebody they were contemplating either putting the five percent down or twenty percent down, mm-hmm. and in the twenty percent down example, it just it it boosted their um, their uh, cash flow because their debt service was lower. Yeah. Um, but it um obviously uh, costs a lot more out out front to do it. Yeah. Um, but then the five percent because because the five percent because their PITI was so high, it actually crushed their cash flow. Right. Yep. Overall returns, the overall return actually came out higher by putting 5% down. So one of the calculators that I have that you can download on my website, if you go to learnlikeacpa.com, shameless plug, Please it, actually has, away. <laughs> it actually has four different breakouts of how you make money on a rental property. So you have cash flow number one. So that's going to be you know net operating income after debt service, cash flow number one. You have appreciation. right? I typically just model in 2 or 3%. You have tax savings on the rental property, which hopefully we'll get into in a second. Yep. And then the fourth, you know, the lastly, um, you have so you have a like I said, cash flow, appreciation, tax benefits, and then equity paid on, right? So modeling that out, five versus twenty percent, your total percent ROI return is actually greater with the five percent. But in this individual's case, he was actually he would have actually been like literally cash flow neutral, right? Maybe coming out of pocket money by putting five percent down. Versus if he would have came up with 20% down, he would be cash flow positive. Um, but now he's got to come up with 20% down. So most of the time, what I see with clients too, is their debt structure looks a little bit different. The closer they get to retirement age, they want to have yeah. less debt. You know, somebody like me or younger, you know, I can lever up, I can lever up pretty well as long as my DTI allows for it yeah. um, and I'm doing it smart uh, versus somebody, you know, the closer the clients get to retirement age, the less debt they're going to want to have
0: overall. Uh, well, that cash flow thing is important too if you want to use more leverage because you know at at, at some point because I talk to I look at tax returns every day I, I don't know as much of it as you obviously but I see them all the time because I'm evaluating people's ability to qualify for a loan but um, what I do see is or what I will tell people is like look at some point you have to claim enough income because at least in this environment as it is right now if you're starting out. Um, and you're not, you don't have a portfolio of properties that you can then take to like a private bank and say, Hey, look, I want to, I want to leverage my portfolio to get more money so I can buy more properties. But when you're starting off, you have to show income because, you know, if you want to get an FHA or a conventional loan or whatever the case may be, you're going to have to, we're going to have to consider your income and your debt. And so, you know, in like the instance that you were giving with the guy putting down 20%, there could be an advantage for him there because If he can then turn around and say, "Okay, I'm actually cash flowing some income from this property, which gives him a little bit more income." You're going to pay more taxes, right? But if I can get more income from there, then I can leverage that income to go, you know, get more debt on on properties if I want to buy more, right?
1: Yeah, no, you actually brought up something that I wanted to touch on back to the realtor camp. Yeah, Um, I notoriously see this with realtors all the time. Is and I'm not picking on you guys. This is what I just see, but realtors will make a hundred, hundred twenty thousand dollars a year and they'll go buy a $50,000 car, right. and the lender will not add back your 179 deduction on your vehicle for your income. So if you make 100 grand as a realtor and you buy a $60,000 car, your net income is 40 grand. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're going to be using to qualify for you for loans. And, and mind you, if you're self-employed, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you're self-employed, you need at least two years of tax returns in order to qualify for a conventional loan. Most um, cases. Exceptions may exist, right? But Yep. You know, I think that's the biggest mistake that I see is you have to know what season you're in. This is what I tell investors all the time. You know, if you're if you're newly self-employed, you know, you're going to need two years of tax returns in order to verify your income. So at the bat, you know, everybody says, oh, deduct or write off everything as possible to drop your income and save, you know, save money with Uncle Sam. But then you turn around and go to your lender. The lender's like, Well, I can't loan you here because you only made X amount of dollars. That's right. You want to take the right deductions that when you flip over to the investor side of things, the lender will actually add back like your mortgage interest, insurance, HOA, uh, taxes, and um, depreciation that we'll talk about. But I see, you know, when you're self-employed, you know, newly self-employed, when you think about it, you're really thinking about probably two and a half years before you're able to qualify for a mortgage as a newly self-employed person because you have to have two years of tax returns and they have to be filed. So you're really waiting until April, you know, two years plus that April, to be able to get returns in order to qualify for a loan. So that's why I think it's so important. You know, I've helped people leave their day jobs to going self-employed full time, to not doing anything other than investing in rental properties. And I think that's the biggest mistake I see people make is they're only thinking like one step. They are not thinking three or four steps ahead of like, okay, here's the next objective, but how do I set myself up for success in the future?
0: So speaking of deductions, because you brought it up, um, tell me a little bit about, you know, give me some ideas of certain deductions that either real estate professionals miss out on because they don't consider because they're doing it themselves or maybe even investment property owners, whether it be short term or long term rentals and, and and tell me, you know what the correlation or the relationship between if you're in because i've heard this before but i don't really understand it if you're an invest if you're a real estate professional like if you're a realtor and you also own investment properties isn't there another level of deductions that you can get or or something along those lines
1: yeah so let's just write into that so if you're if you're a real estate professional by trade so you're a realtor property manager um, lease your broker. There's there's eleven actually types of what are called real property trades or businesses. You can Google them. Uh, but okay. let's just take the realtor for example. And let's say you're a realtor and you make two hundred thousand. Uh, let's say you're a realtor and you make a hundred thousand dollars a year.
0: Okay.
1: So you know, as a single realtor, you know, making hundred k, you're probably paying twenty two thousand to the feds. You're probably you know, let's just say you don't have state income tax, so you're paying twenty two thousand to the feds. Um, and then you also have self-employment tax on top of that, like I talked about. So, you know, single making 100k, you're probably paying thirty thousand dollars a year in taxes. Yeah, uh, no doubt. That's a lot. But yeah, but here's where being a real estate professional and owning your own rental properties comes in, because if you are a realtor and you own rentals and you do what's called material participation in those rentals, which is basically a fancy word for meaning that you are the one that manages the property, okay. And you and you spend a lot of time managing the property. If you can prove that you're a real estate professional and you manage your properties full, you know, you manage your properties, you don't have a no, uh, no property manager, nobody really helping you with the management. You can use the losses and the deductions from your rental property to help offset your W two or your ten ninety nine income. Really? If I'm a, if I make, let's just you know, it's direct. A it's a of, direct
0: amount. So if you lost whatever thirty grand managing your properties, you can take a direct deduction from thirty thousand off your
1: drop the drop the gross income by thirty grand. Wow. So like, for example, let's say, you know, let's, let's up the numbers a little bit. So like I have a client that makes probably $4 million a year as a realtor okay. and he, he probably buys about five to $600,000 worth of real estate per year, long-term rentals, short-term rentals, commercial properties. The depreciation from those, from 500, you typically get about 25% of the purchase price is the amount of depreciation that you typically get. So if I bought a $500,000 property, let's say, I'm probably going to get $125,000 of depreciation.
0: Is that over the life of the loan or over the life of the property of the first year or how does that depreciation work out
1: so the depreciation is typically over the life of the property Got so it. if you bought let's just easy math let's say you bought um the five hundred thousand dollar property is going to be depreciated over 27 and a half years so you're really you're really only going to get like probably twenty thousand of depreciation per year okay that's where the accelerated depreciation that a lot of people talk about like cost segregation studies come into play because Instead of taking $27,000 per year for 27 and a half years, I'm able to accelerate most of that depreciation into year one. Really, And so instead of taking 27,000, you're able to take 125,000 in this example in year one.
0: Right? Is that just that, if you're a real estate professional? Is that anybody?
1: Anybody can do that, but it's just the double whammy if you're an actual real estate professional. Gotcha. See me, for example, because I'm not a real estate professional, that loss, just remains passive to me. So I can't use it to offset my WT or my CPA firm income. Gotcha. But as a real estate agent who also owns rental properties, you could take that $100,000, $125,000 loss and take it against your 1099 income. So this particular person who's making 250 grand, he cuts his income tax bill in half.
0: Wow, okay. Just from acquiring those properties every year. And then that he's already doing, again,
1: these are things that people are already doing that they don't know about that can help them save at least five figures.
0: Jeez. Um, What what else, how does it come to, uh, like, let's talk about mileage. Cause that's always one that, you know, realtors are driving around all over the place. I mean, is it, you know, <laughs> you're a CPA. So obviously we need to be very meticulous when we track our mileage, but you know, how, how do you, how would you recommend somebody go about doing that and how important is it? And, you know, do you get that much from, from, a uh, something like that?
1: Yeah. So the two ways to get benefits from your mileage is you either take what's called the actual method or you take the standard mileage method okay uh, so the actual method I typically recommend for people who are who have who buy cars that are more than thirty thousand dollars and up yeah um, but the actual method means you can generally write off the full cost of the vehicle in the first year so if I bought a thirty thousand dollar car or SUV or truck I could take that against my income but remember, if i'm if i'm a first or second year realtor that may not be the best thing because the lender's not going to add that back to my income
0: right yeah it comes directly the, off the money the
1: other the other the other way you can do it is you can just track your mileage so you might have a vehicle like let's say you're a part-time realtor so you use the vehicle mostly for like personal use or like commuting or taking kids back and forth you can actually track your miles and you get a cent per mile deduction i think this year it's 60 cents per mile but it both in both scenarios you do have to track your business miles so the best way I recommend people to do this is if you just take a picture of your odometer at the beginning of the year mm-hmm. and take a picture of it at the end of the year and all you have to do is track your business miles in between um, there's apps like mile IQ or you can keep a mileage log in Excel or something like that yeah. I used to do that and then and then you can just back out the difference between personal and business use if you have those
0: is that a pretty good uh, do you get a pretty good Uh, deduction hit on that, that, uh, that helps you with overall income for the most part?
1: Yeah. So the, the, the deduction that you get is going to depend on, you know, the purchase price of the vehicle, but then also your income tax bracket. So that's why I just kind of threw that out there. Most of the time, if you're buying over a $30,000 vehicle, you want to use the actual method because it normally normally amounts to more, uh, more deductions. But if you're, if it's, if your vehicle is under 30 K, you probably want to use the mileage method.
0: So, uh, You know nobody likes to get audited right nobody wants to have the irs show up and tell them they want to show all their returns but um as a cpa if someone was filing their own returns now we'll get to the advantages of hiring a cpa here in a second but if someone wants to file their own returns are there any deductions or is there anything that they would do that you would say, Hey, look, be careful. You know, that can throw up red flags to the IRS. That'll come out and, you know, dig through your stuff a little bit more, you know, keep it conservative or, you know, there's some things just like, yeah, you can put that on there and generally they're going to be okay. Like wh- what would you suggest or, yeah. or do that, look out for it, situations like that?
1: So I would say the number one mistake I see in, in like self-prepared tax returns is the client's miss depreciation. Right. So they either don't know how to calculate it or they completely miss it off on their return. Okay so like let me give you my long term rental example. So my property I collected you know last year I collected probably 14 grand in gross rent on my property mm-hmm. uh, 14 grand of gross rent, I don't pay any utilities or whatever so my, my net income on the property um, after interest, you know taxes you, you know insurance whatever my my, gro- my net income is probably like 10 grand, right yeah. My depreciation on the property was thirteen thousand bucks. Which means I have ten thousand dollars of cash flow that hits my bank account that I would have to pay taxes on, but with thirteen thousand of depreciation, it wipes out the ten thousand dollars of income. Okay. If if something as simple as missing the depreciation count results in me, you know, I'm in the highest tax bracket. I pay an extra four thousand bucks in taxes if I had that ten thousand dollars of income on my return.
0: Wow. Okay. So so that's a that's a big miss. <laughs> you don't want to yeah. Don't want to swing and miss on those. You Um,
1: want to make sure that there's something, you know, and the reason why I say this is because I've reviewed hundreds of self-prepared tax returns before. And the only person that I've ever seen do it right, um, that wasn't a, that wasn't an accountant. He he had an accounting degree. Right. (laughs) He'd been there (laughs) done it before. Another mistake that I see people make in self-prepared returns. And unfortunately, I think this is just by design of like how a lot of these apps are set up, like a TurboTax or like a um, whatever, you know, vendor software people use is sure. it'll ask you something like, Oh, did you pay mortgage interest? And right. people are like, Oh yeah, of course I did. Yeah. But it'll ask the same question like four different times. So let me give you an example. Like I saw somebody that had a business that they ran out of their home. So the question asked, did you pay interest in your business? Yeah, I paid 10 grand a year on my primary home mortgage interest, right? And then then it asked, Oh, did you have a rental property and you pay mortgage interest? Oh, yeah, I ran out the top of my house. So my mortgage interest was 10 grand. So they took the same the $10,000 that they had in mortgage interest they deducted it three different places. Oh wow. On, the, on their schedule C, on their schedule E and on their schedule A for itemized deductions.
0: Wow. So they, they they just t- thought yeah, for each it's one they take audit. it on that. Okay, yeah. I got you. So, is there a? Do you think there's a threshold? Speaking of, you know, self prepared versus using a CPA. Um, what What would be the the circumstance or the threshold where someone should go from? Hey, look, I did my taxes myself using TurboTax. I go to H and R Block, whatever. Versus, all right, now I need to hire a CPA because there's going to be certainly the cost benefit is going to be much greater for me if I do it at this point.
1: Yeah, I would say. If you have a rental property, it it makes a lot of sense to have not, maybe not necessarily a CPA, but have a tax professional prepare it. So right away, if you have a rental property, it's, it's, it's time to upgrade from self-preparing and and to having somebody do your tax return. If you're just a realtor and you're making, let's just say less than 50 grand net, I think you can still probably self-prepare. Um, but if you're a realtor, you know, you're making 50,000 plus, I think it's time to have like somebody prepare your return just because, it used to be a lot easier, but nowadays there's just so many deductions and stuff that you don't want to miss. And I mean, yeah. like we literally study the tax code day in and day out. So you know, you when you when your car bro- breaks down, you don't try to fix it yourself; you take it to a mechanic. I don't know right. why taxes are any different. So,
0: um, <laughs> well, especially because if you're if you try to fix it yourself and it breaks again, then there's not going to be a government agency that shows up and, and puts you in handcuffs because well, you did it wrong. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And, and that's, that's another thing too. I mean, I see people all the time that they'll grab bits and pieces of whether it's my information or somebody else's information online and they'll say, Oh yeah, this is, um, you know, this is how it works, but don't ask me. I'm not an accountant, you know? Right. You don't, you don't see me going online and saying, Oh yeah, this is how you fix your car, but don't ask me. I'm not an like, you don't see me doing
0: that.
1: If you're not a CPA, stop giving advice,
0: please. Yeah. Yeah. well and that's the thing that you know especially these days because you know you there is so much information out there there's a ton of information you can go online and you can you know if you really were committed to it you could probably get the equivalent of an mba or a cpa or whatever if you wanted to now it's not legitimate because you don't have a piece of paper for it but but either way there's a lot of information out there but there's also a lot of bullshit out there and yeah. y- you know you have to sift through and figure out what the bullshit is and what the real information is simply because you know if you're trying to go about this on your own you know it's it, it it can be done but um you know i'm ai uh i love chris rock i'm a big stand-up comedy fan and he has a joke where he says you know you can drive your car with your feet but it doesn't make it a good idea you know it's like you can you can do it but it doesn't mean that it that it's that you should be done and but i would also say because and this is something that me personally that i've been you know on a bit of a quest lately is is and part of the reason i reached out to you too is is you know i have a very relatively complicated situation personally with my taxes and properties and whatnot. Um, my wife's a realtor. I'm a mortgage professional. We have two short-term rentals. We have a commercial property, you know, we have our home, all those kind of things, but I don't want to do my taxes. I have zero desire to do my taxes. However, I want to understand what is being done because if I understand it, that I'm going to make a better decision when it comes to who I'm going to hire to manage that piece. It's kind of like, you know, I use this analogy a lot. It's not necessarily the same as good, but you know, you can. I know how to mow my yard. I know how to edge my yard. I know how to mow it. I know how to, you know, do all the things that are necessary. And I know what it should look like when it's done. So if I hire somebody to come in and do it, I'm taking the best use of my time and doing other things. And I'm letting that person handle it. But I also know what he's doing and I know exactly how it should look when it's done. So I know that I'm getting the value for my money. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, do you, you think as well, when it comes to, you know, hiring professionals to do the job, you know, take your time. Cause I've heard you say this before and put it where, where the best use of that time is. And it may not be, if you're, if you're a real estate professional, or you're buying properties or whatever, then spend your time doing that. Don't spend your time doing your taxes. Just hire the right people.
1: Yeah. It's just like they throw out highest and best use offer. Um, yeah. you, you have to find the highest and best use of your time. So you know that that simply starts. A lot of people will say, "Hey, you know, what is an hour of your time worth?" Um, You know, you could calculate that by whatever you made last year divided by however many hours you work, or you just have a you know a figure in your head that says, "Hey, you know, "Um, hey, my time's worth five hundred dollars an hour." So if I could find, if I can get the job, whatever I have to do, whether it's um, you know uh, marketing stuff, VA stuff, cleaning, mowing the grass, if I could find it for cheaper going to outsource it um yeah. a good a good starting point for that if you're interested in doing that is actually to draw uh, there's a book called the genius zone by a guy named um gus hendricks and it basically talks about putting all all your activities you know go go two weeks and just journal all your different activities that you do and mm-hmm. put them in four different quadrants with the top left quadrant being the most important the most like uh Su- super sophisticated tasks that you and only you can do. Mm-hmm. And then the other, the other three quadrants, you know, those can be outsourced to some ab- uh, uh, ability or figure out how to get somebody else to take, take a hold of those. Right. Because if you, because the argument of the book is a lot of times people only spend 10% of their time in what's called their genius zone. So your genius zone is, in my opinion, it's like what you're put on this earth to do. So whether that's, you know, you're, you're put on this earth to be a teacher an educator, uh, land, you know, whatever it is that you do, you know, right. uh, mother or father whatever it is like that's your genius zone and the argument of the book is most people only spend 10% of their time in their genius zone and 90% of the time doing non-genius zone stuff whereas me you know like this year I made the shift to where I think I really do spend probably 60 to 70% of my time in my genius zone and then the other 30% I'm still doing those like you know mundane activities that I don't really need to do but until I can get them fully outsourced that's just what it's going to be
0: well, I'm glad you brought that up, too, because one of the I did want to ask you about was, um, you know, the way I found you, honestly, is because I've been looking for a CPA to have on the show because I really am interested in this. And I'll probably have more in the future, too. But um, but it's a, it's something that I think for business owners and real estate professionals is really important because you're you're we're all trying to make money and maximize our savings and all that stuff. So I found you uh, by looking online. I just went um, to TikTok. I went to uh, you know LinkedIn and, and these uh, different social platforms. And, um, you know, you've done a great job job. Uh, you've got a great following online. Uh, you've done a good job of building up your platform. I've seen, you know, you obviously do speaking events at different conferences and stuff and, you know, seen the, uh, uh the clips on those, but what's been your approach. I'm just curious from a marketing point of view, not necessarily as a, as a, uh, an accountant anymore, but just as a business owner, that's trying to, you know, brand yourself out there. Um, what's kind of been your strategy online that you found the, to be the most effective. And if you were talking to someone else, trying to brand themselves in the same, in the same light what would you what would you recommend to them Um,
1: uh, so i'll let you guys in on a little secret insight so there's three there's three big pillars in this business that if you can master um you won't ever have to be you won't ever have to scrap for money ever again so number one is you have to become the person of interest and whatever it is that you do become the person of interest so when somebody thinks about real estate tax or real estate finances or short-term miles my name hops up Ryan right B. just like how you found me Google yeah, search, CPA, exactly. right? You have to become the person of interest. Um, when and whatever it is that you do, and you can do that simply by joining groups, joining communities. The way I got started is I just started commenting on people's posts, responding to their questions. You know, people would post in bigger pockets or these Facebook groups. Hey, I have this question, you know, capital gains tax, whatever. I would just simply respond, hey, my name's Ryan, I'm CPA, blah, blah, blah. You know, I would set a timer on my phone, 20 minutes every single day. Just do that. Become the person of interest. And then it got to the point where people would be, hey. I don't know the answer, but this guy, Ryan does. Let me tag this guy, Ryan. And it, right. it creates that, it creates that, okay, this is the guy that you need to talk to. Right. right. Number one, become the person that just number two is what's called the law of reciprocity. So the way re- reciprocity works is you have to give value without ever expecting anything in return. Just the same way that I'm on this podcast, giving my time away for free that I could normally charge a thousand dollars an hour for, I'm giving it for free. Right. Yep.
0: Um, you guys,
1: that you go to Olive Garden, you got Olive Garden in Texas.
0: Oh yeah, we got the Olive Garden. No so, doubt. what do
1: they what do they do when they bring you the bill?
0: Uh, they bring you the mints.
1: They bring you a mint, right? So they did a study and it said the waitress that brought one mint got seven percent on average tip. Uh-huh. The waitress that came and brought two mints got thirteen percent average on tip. But yeah. the waitress that got the most money was the waitress that brought the bill with the mint, went to the kitchen, came back and brought another mint. To the table because the table thought, oh wow, she went out of her way to provide us value right before they signed the bill. She wow. got the most tip, so you have to be able to give value without ever expecting anything in return. Yeah. And pillar number three is what's called the transfer of authority. So a lot of people see this as like a referral. Oh, I need a referral for this. It's a lot deeper than that. The way transfer of authority works is, you know, somebody's going to go to you, Mike, about a loan question, or they're going to have a lending situation. They buy a house and they say, well. You know, I just sold the house here. I really need somebody that can, um, you, you know, do you happen to know about how the capital gains works? Or do you know anybody you say, hey, well, this is what I know in my field. But you really need to go and talk to Ryan because he really is the expert at what it is that he does in this tax stuff. And yeah. so I don't need to be vetted anymore because I've already been vetted, vetted through Mike. Right. right? So I, I spend less time on my end having to qualify the client, having to vet them, having to make them like get on board with me because I've yeah. already been vetted through you. Right. So you you have to learn how to receive and reciprocate authority within your space. So I do the same thing for you. I would say, hey, if you're looking for an you know a, a lone guy in Texas, this is the guy you need to talk to. Mm-hmm. And so I can do this. You know, you have to learn how to receive and uh, reciprocate authority in your space.
0: Yeah. No, those things are all that. That's absolutely um, I talk about that stuff all the time. It's it's the uh, the more time you engage and the more time you spend, you know, communicating with people um, and, you know, you can call it building an audience, you can call it whatever you want, but um, that is always going to do a benefit to you. And, you know, I think especially, you know, we see it a lot in the real estate world where people will go online agents and even mortgage lenders and anybody that does our job. will there's always they're like giving a commercial for themselves on social media. It's like, hey, call me if you need to buy or sell your house or call me if you need to do your loan or you know whatever whatever the tagline may be and and the and the truth is is I don't think and I don't, I think the the statistics statistics would bear out that it's that that's not the way to approach it you know you have to become the expert on the subject you have to become somebody who's willing to just give the information without expecting something in return the reciprocity thing that you're talking about and you have to engage with people on a regular basis in order for them to see and think of you when it comes time to make that decision
1: because do you know who the best person to sell you or your product is?
0: Um no. Tell me. Someone else. Yes.
1: <laughs> there you go. It's it's yep. it's way easier for somebody for, for somebody to say, hey, I'm a client of Ryan's, or you really need to go talk to Ryan because he can do X, Y, and Z, than it is for me to try to engage that person and convince them to come on board. Yeah. It's way easier for somebody else to sell you or sell your product than it is for you. It's just a, yeah. it's just a basic uh, it's a not a persuasion tactic, but it's it's been a, it's been around forever. Um, I would also throw like one last little nugget in there. Yeah, is this idea of freezing your time? So you know, a lot of times, whatever field you're going into, you're going to become a, an extreme expert at that at that craft to where you'll you will find yourself answering those very basic you know basic beginner entry-level questions there. The best thing I can recommend is just Loom video, Zoom video, podcast, whatever. Freeze your time, do it one time, and then you can just mass distribute that to people. Yeah. Um, you know, I get people all the time that have a question about something, and I'll say, hey, go check out this podcast, let's get on the same page here, and then come, come to me with a little bit more of a sophisticated question, and let me see how I can help you. But you have to be able to freeze your time Whether it's through podcasts, social media, you know, I have, I have courses that I make money on now that I sell to people that want to learn about real estate tax, freeze your time, do it one time and just mass distribute it.
0: Well, speaking of that, I was going to ask you because we're we're almost uh, we're almost at an hour now. So time went by quick. So that's awesome. But um, I do want you to tell everybody about your coaching program uh, or your seminars, what you run through your business. And um, when, it, especially as it comes to um, you know structuring your real estate portfolio and how to put it all together, because I know you do have some uh, some pretty great programs that you guys are offering now.
1: Yeah, so I have um, just a basic. You know, you could find me on uh, podcasts. Learn like a CPA show. So if you if you really wanted to, you could learn every single thing by just listening to my podcast. Uh, but you would have to spend you know dozens, hundreds of hours learning it. Uh, but if you wanted to take the next level, so I have just uh, basic courses for uh, short term or long term rental investors. Uh, okay. You know, whether you're owning you know multifamily or short term rentals, um, and if you want to take the step up, there's a course plus a accountability or a coaching group where. Once you finish the course, it rolls you into biweekly coaching calls with me. So you'll be able to ask all your questions um, that you have, or if you wanted to do one-on-one consulting, I also have that too, obviously at higher rates, but that's all, you know, if you just go to learnlikeacpa.com, you can uh, engage and inquire about those.
0: Well, man, that's awesome. Um, I really, really appreciate your time. Thanks for, you know, agreeing to do this with me just kind of out of the blue. So, um, I got a ton of great information, but, um, uh, you know, we'll definitely have to do it again sometime soon because I do think there's a lot more, uh, here, obviously there's a lot more depth to it, but whether you're talking about short-term rentals or long-term rentals or multifamily, I know you do a lot of specialization in multifamily stuff. So, um, you know, can't get to all of it at once, but, um, I can't thank you enough, uh, for hopping on with me for a little bit and kind of digging into it and, um, just let everybody know how to get in touch with you if they have any questions uh where to reach you all your socials all that kind of stuff and then we'll uh we'll wrap it up
1: yeah so all social media platforms this is going to be TikTok, instagram and twitter it's going to be at learn like a cpa just like here in the handle uh, if you go on facebook it's uh, tax strategies for real estate investors we have a facebook group with over five thousand uh, real estate investors in there asking tax questions every single day wow. uh, so make sure to check us out there and post a question uh Depending on when this is released, I, I do like monthly just free webinars training. So, for example, on Monday, I'll be doing a webinar on how to analyze pro formas and financial
0: statements. Okay, awesome. Well, Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll try to link some of the Facebook groups and stuff in the comments uh, there, too. So, if anybody wants to go to and check it out, they absolutely can. Um, again, thank you very much, Ryan. I really appreciate your time. Uh, this was great information, and uh, I hope you have a great week, man. Thank you. Awesome. Right, see you guys.